welcome to the Stewardship Podcast, where your host, financial advisor Andrew Mitchell, talks with industry experts to help you steward your time, talents, and money. Welcome to the Stewardship Podcast. Today, we're talking about money. We have Ben Verwise as our special guest. He is the founder and owner of Action Point Financial Planning and, quite frankly, kind of my boss. Uh, but we're talking about money, specifically financial planning through a crisis. And uh, Ben, thanks for being on the show today. You bet. So why don't you get us started off by uh, just giving us a little bit of your background and even talk us through a little bit of where you were at during the 2008 crisis. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I'll work backwards. Uh, that might be easiest. And then sure. you can stop me wherever you want to. Um, obviously the, 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 last six years background tends to align, uh, with many entrepreneurs and business owners as I left the traditional world of higher end money management, wall street, whatever, you know, world that people would consider that part of to start a, a startup RIA registered investment advisory firm that you and I are both a part of. And uh, so prior to that, I was working at a large publicly traded Wall Street firm called Oppenheimer. It was literally headquartered on Wall Street and, um, and worked for, that was one of those firms that, like many others, that, that's larger, that has thousands of advisors all over the country and then thousands and thousands of support staff. And so the team that I was a part of, was actually one of the highest producers in the firm, which is kind of funny because most people in the firm were, you know, New York and or, or or on the coast, and they couldn't figure out why this one team was in this one place they'd never heard of in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So uh, I spent six years there prior to launching this, and that's where I was in in 2008. I actually joined the firm in 2008, uh, towards the end of 2008. And if you recall, the, the market bottomed in March of 2009. So I actually got to this firm. I, prior to that, I, I had spent a year or so at, uh, in the investment division of a, of a large Midwest bank called National City that was uh, eventually bought out by PNC. And so it had, had been through kind of all of the channels, even taking it further than that used to my start of my career in the insurance channel. So at Northwestern Mutual. So I'd done the insurance thing for a couple of years early on, uh, then joined the military and then, uh, came back to Michigan in 2007, which was when I started working for national city and, and the, the recession had already sort of started. You already had some slowing in the economy. And people talk about 2008. It really was a about a two-year window from late, to, well, mid-2007 to that bottom in 2009. That was the, the crash, so to speak, economically. Um, and so I started my career at Oppenheimer uh, in late 2008. The team I worked for was managing, boy, I mean, eight, seven, eight, nine hundred million dollars for, for private investors and several billion dollars in, in employer retirement plans. Mm. And so I went from kind of a 
you know, a nice middle of the road career to all of a sudden managing money for a lot of money for very wealthy people and very large companies. Uh, and four months later, uh, the market bottomed in the 2008 crash. And so it needless to say, those first four months were really rough. I mean, a ton of just every day I could watch the, the red. And that was how I kind of started. I've always said it's better to start uh, at the bottom than the top. And that was my, my backstory of starting kind of at the bottom in, in true money management, planning, all those kinds of things. The rest of what I'd done was a nice lead up to that. But uh, managing eight, nine hundred million dollars in the middle of a market crash was was eye opening. For sure. What you know, some people would say you had it made at Oppenheimer. Uh, that's you know, starting at the bottom, ending up at the top. <laughs> and you decided to re restart. What what was the key triggers that made you restart in forming an RIA and and going that direction? Yeah, I mean, people really did. I yeah. In that moment, I seemed crazy, right? I, um, even my parents, I think, thought I was crazy. They knew who I worked for and with. It was sort of the, the dream job, right? When you're in your 20s and you want to come up and work in finance, you dream of working for you know, a group that even has a chance to manage a billion dollars, right? And all the things that go with that from a workload standpoint to, uh, you know, it, it just, I, I had a really unique background and I'm really thankful for it. I got a chance to kind of skip the business building, knock on doors, slug through hard work. And in my, in my mid twenties landed in the spot where, you know, we didn't even really take on new clients. And, uh, and it also should be said, I guess that, you know, some, some firms are really large like that, but they're, they're large in, in quantity, not quality. We were the opposite. We were large in quality. I think we managed you know, basically a hundred families, hundred to 110 families, something like that. So um, we didn't have thousands of clients. And so I kind of came into a scenario where I, you didn't have to work that hard. The team was already into, a, was already a well-oiled machine and you sort of reached the top, at least in Grand Rapids. I mean, in, in West Michigan, that team is still one of the largest teams around. And uh, it, it was not hard to envision spending my entire career as a part of that team. In fact, I, I would have said for the first few years, I don't know why I would leave. I have to be crazy to leave. And, uh, yeah, you know, our world is changing. Obviously you're a part of that too. And I don't know what your listener base will be, but the reality is our, the, the world of financial advice and investment management has really changed a lot since I even came in to this business, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was. Um, and ultimately what it came down to is that, what I viewed important going forward, I just didn't see as prioritized, not just at Oppenheimer, but at any firm. I, I didn't see a lot of emphasis on fiduciary duty or fee compression. I, 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 I think that the charging investors less is something that if you can do it, you should actively work to do it. And what I saw was a world with the opposite type of thinking. The more we can charge, the better off we're doing somehow. And and that just never really resonated with me. And so the more I kind of got to a point where I didn't know what I would do for the next 15 to 20 years, but I, know, I knew it would be a lot of the same work I had been doing, the harder it became for me to swallow sitting in my desk every day doing the same work, you know, hoping for a pay raise kind of thing. And even though the work was highly compelling and highly interesting, 
the simple reality is when I, when I whiteboarded out all the things that were important to me, I wasn't really doing any of it. And so um, if there's any lesson there for anyone, whether you're in our world or not, it's that you got to be happy with what you're doing and it's got to be challenging and inspiring or you shouldn't do it. Uh, I think there's a healthy line between, you know, being the starving artist versus, but it, it, you still should do something you love. And, and I just wasn't loving it anymore. Um, and I also viewed it as a point of starvation for the industry. Uh, now it's kind of become really in vogue to start an RIA. Yeah. Uh, or to go work for an RIA and have a fiduciary duty and, and all those things. But then I, mean, I literally looked around and thought, I don't even have anywhere I can go. All the existing RIAs were essentially old school businesses that hadn't pivoted their models. <laughs> so I could go work for an RIA, but I would have still been doing it the same way with a very antiquated way of thinking, maximize profit. You know, all that matters is, is the dollar. And, and, and there was not a lot of sort of social work being done, socially conscious work being done in our world 10, 12 years ago. So that was why I started an RIA from scratch, not because it was a great idea. I still don't know if it was a great idea, but it was, uh, at the time, it was the only idea I had. Sure. So. That's great. That's great. Thanks for that insight. Um, so kind of the bulk of where I want to spend our time is talking about financial planning and talking about financial planning through a crisis or through the stress times in our lives, but yeah. also that we came through. So I want to kind of start with a baseline just to kind of bring people up to speed if they're listening and they're not really familiar with this world. Can you start by just defining what financial planning is? Maybe talk a little bit about what it's not uh, just to kind of get us started. Sure. Yeah. So planning is really the process of evaluating your life and figuring out, is there a direction or a goal or somewhere you want to be that you're not today? And then if so, and almost everybody, if they're really honest about it, would say yes to that question. You, you know, as we have clients that have millions of dollars and have theoretically made it, and yet their desires for where they want to be are just as strong as somebody starting out, right? And it's because as you get older, you're, you, you realize certain things matter more than just accumulation. So for somebody who's broke, accumulating is the most important thing. And then for somebody who's no longer broke and has some money, becoming happy becomes a really important thing or caring for a family becomes a really important thing, right? Or, or being fulfilled in the work you do. Or, I mean, you know this because we, we talk about this every day with clients. Like every client we talk to has something that's important to them. And many of them have never really spent any time figuring out what that is or whether it's possible or what they need to do to get there. So financial planning as a, as a vocation is the process of somebody, helping somebody design their life, not the life they necessarily have today, although a lot of people have, have worked really hard and have a great life. And, and so it's more a matter of augmenting what they've already done. But you know, financial planning is, is, is a process that anyone who wants to get to a better position not just with money, but in other things too, that money can help support. It's that process of identifying where are we heading? Is that the direction I want to go? Where do I want to get to? What's important to me? And then quantifying and creating a modeling process around that so that there's an actual blueprint instead of just a hope and a prayer, right? Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that's what planning is. What it isn't is straight accumulation. 
right? And that's what our world used to be was we used to be from the advent of stockbrokers to investment advisors. It used to be just get as much as possible. And there was no real reason for that. There was no real definition around why that was important. It was almost like a rat race of who can accumulate the most. And there was somehow value in that for decades. I mean, now it's sort of funny to look back and think like, that's crazy to me that that was how so many people thought for so long. Because uh, we both know money doesn't necessarily make someone happier. Uh, But what they do with that money can. So uh, what it is not is simply just a rat race of accumulation. We want people to accumulate more, but it's, it's towards an end goal so that that money can provide something in their life, stability, freedom, independence, autonomy, et cetera. Yeah. I think that's a great point to bring up just that whole idea of it's not just accumulation. I, I mean, you're 100% right to say that I think that's what everybody views us as, as well as, oh, that's just my savings account or that's my investment guy. It's not, it's not anything outside of those. Sure. And that's just, yeah, it's, that's not what it is. It's, it's about much more than that uh, and strategies about how to do so much more than just accumulate money. So I appreciate you bringing that to light for sure. Um, how does somebody get started with financial planning? Do you mean as a consumer? Yeah, yeah. If somebody's a consumer and they yeah. hear what you're saying and they say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. How does somebody, you know, is there a minimum investment yeah. that they need to have? Like, how are they going to go oh, out sure. and doing financial planning or get involved with somebody that's a financial advisor? Yeah, gotcha. Well, like anything, step one is intention, right? Yeah. Step two is acknowledgement. So step one is I want to go somewhere that I'm not. Step two is I realize if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to get there. Um, And even somebody who would naturally accumulate that money, if they're really honest with themselves, I've actually told clients to sit in front of a mirror, look at yourself, look yourself in the eye and be honest about, are you, are you doing the things you should be doing? Maybe you don't even know what those things are. And if so, then the, the two most important steps before you've even talked to anybody are to, are to set an intention that you want to get somewhere and then to, 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 to acknowledge that if you don't make some changes or prioritize some things or work with somebody who can help you do those things, then you probably won't get anywhere. You, you know I like adages, so I'm a big believer in the old adage, if you do what you've always done, you'll, you'll get what you've always gotten. And, and inevitably, financial planning is not a helpful thing to somebody who is doing what they've always done, who will get what they've always gotten because uh, planning requires change. It requires proactivity. It requires sacrifice. It doesn't mean our clients who are focused on good, prudent financial planning are uh, that it's a painful process for them. But what it does mean is there may be dollars we tell them that's not the best use of, even though that might be the thing you want to do right now. Um, there's a penalty to that right? Or there's a sacrifice to be made. And so it's a healthy balance. I think one thing people should go into financial planning recognizing is a a well-built life typically involves a well-built plan. And a well-built plan typically involves planning for both the future without sacrificing the current. So that's what we kind of have to acknowledge when we, when any of us, because you and I are, are, are advisors, but we're also, we're also both consumers, right? We're also both people who have hopes and dreams and want to get somewhere. So this is the way I think even just with my own life is um, 
it's a healthy balance between living today and making sure I'm happy with the life I'm going to live tomorrow as well. Uh, and so from a consumer standpoint, number one, if you look hard enough, there you'll always find somebody willing to help you. Unfortunately, our industry of wealth management and financial planning has closed a lot of doors that aren't profitable, right? And, 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 and to a certain extent, rightfully so, because a, a bad business shouldn't be open. Uh, but the flip side of that is what our world has defined as a bad business is you know, often somebody that generate way too low a figure of revenue, which was why when I built Action Point, it's part of why you're, you're with us. And, and, and our other team that will continue to build out over the years is I knew that I would hit a capacity limit where I could no longer help clients because I've already got my own clients that I need to help. And, and so we either have to be honest about the fact that you have to close your doors and be closed to new, taking on new clients and helping others or create some kind of mechanism to continue to help those people who come along who maybe don't have a million dollars or $2 million. Because if you saved up that much already, you know, every advisor will take you. But really, for somebody who wants to get started, it's hard because the deck is stacked against you. So I, I'll share a couple of the key really quick points. Number one, you, you and I are both have kind of sworn the fiduciary oath. We know what it means to be a fiduciary. We're signed up for that. Number one, anybody looking should start with what is the fiduciary? Why do I need one and not accept anything less than that? And number two, you, there are very few firms, but we are one of them here that have cr thought creatively about how we can have a, 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 a business model that allows us to take care of our families, but also allows us to help anyone who wants help, yeah. right? So that is where kind of our subscription model that we've launched in the last couple of years comes in where somebody who, um, you know, regardless of where they're at in their financial life for an affordable rate can get really good practical fiduciary advice around their money. So number one, for somebody who can get started, you don't have to have a minimum of investment, though a lot of firms will tell you you do. What you do need is to maybe keep knocking on the right doors until you find a firm like ours where we will take clients on no matter what threshold they're at, whether they've saved no money or not, because we have a mechanism where we can still run a good business without compromising or sacrificing our standards as a fiduciary. Yep. So that's where I'd start. That's great. That's great information. For I'm going to plug my computer. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, that's just great information for folks that are, you know, just getting started or, you know, they know they need the help and they just don't know where to turn. So I, I appreciate you walking us through that. Let's pivot just a little bit. Um, if you're, if you have no idea that we've just walked through a crisis, you've been living under a rock at this point. Um, you know, we hit, pretty much the bottom, I believe it was the end of March. Um, and, you know, and it's, and it's been this rebuilding time. The market continues. March 9. March 9. That's great to know the exact date. March 9. Yeah. Um, and we've continued to walk through recovery. You know, the market was up. You know, it's dropped in the last week or so. Um, can you talk us through a little bit of what it means to financial plan through a time like that? Um, what's the guiding light there and, and how do you work with clients through that time? Yeah, well, let's, I mean, let's break this up into a few phases, sure. right? Because somebody who, who realizes what happens oftentimes in a crash like COVID or 2008 or any others that will come along is it sheds light. The, the fragility of the scenario 
just that uncertainty causes people who would otherwise be on a pretty good financial track to question whether they are or not. If you're not on a good financial track or you haven't done good planning, usually you know that. You're not like, I don't, have you ever had anybody, Andrew, where you've been like, you have to inform them that they're not on a, on a good financial track and they didn't know it? Like they, <laughs> they're just like completely caught off guard? Generally, it's 100% like you just said, and like they, people and, know it. <laughs> right, right. So in the work, you're not surprising somebody when they know they're not doing a good financial job. The hard part is when the people in that position come to you in a crash expecting you to fix it for them, yeah. right? Because what happens is they, they feel like they can get by. And, and part of this comes down to something we talk about all the time, which is that we're an easy thing to procrastinate, right? Good yeah. financial decisions are easy to procrastinate. And this has been true since we were kids. I mean, you had to, if you went and earned any money or you got an allowance, you had to decide whether to spend that money on candy or save it. And, and most kids are taught to spend the money, right? Because they're not taught about compounding interest, not to mention that's not a topic a five-year-old wants to talk about anyway. So we're inclined from a young age to make bad decisions about money because it's just more fun to make you know, not great decisions about money. And so 90% of the time, that's actually fine for most people. The reason we plan is for the crisis, but it's hard to plan in the crisis, right? Yeah. So what I tell most people is, you know, you, you, going into a crisis like this, the ones who are rewarded and sort of can go to sleep really comfortably at night are the ones who knew this was coming all along and have made good decisions along the way so that whenever this hit, they just didn't have the, you know, the, the economic volatility or the, the mental volatility, right? Yeah. So if somebody's got no savings in place and they just lost their job, they're going through a really terrible time. Where if somebody's been done all the right things and gone through a solid financial plan, this may still not be fun but it's certainly far more manageable. Number one, because you plan for it, which means you weren't caught off, as caught off guard by it. And we talk to people all the time. We'd say, we don't know what the next crash is going to be, but we know there's going to be one. So to, to act like there isn't one just because you don't see it is akin to saying, well, because it's not storming outside right now, I don't think there will ever be a thunderstorm again. And in reality, that you know, no one who's been alive for more than a couple of years would, would say that. So... The reality is planning is a process that happens pre the emergency for the emergency. Um, and anybody who has done that planning sort of recognizes that. The same is true, by the way, when you take into any kind of long-term planning, like retirement planning or, you know, for somebody who maybe it's not retirement, but financial independence. You, you, we've got a lot of clients that uh, saved up enough and made the right decisions and we worked for three years where they're not retiring yet, but if they wanted to, they could not show up tomorrow again for good, right? They could, they could, they've done the work, they've put in the effort. And now it's up to them whether they want to go in or not. And that flexibility is worth a lot in their minds. And, and that's possible because, which that's not a crisis, but it gives you that flexibility then to navigate the way you want crisis or not. So I could see some people who've done a really good job financial planning saying, well, I just, you know, I don't want to go back to work in a COVID like environment and have to wear masks and take my temperature and do all this stuff. I saved up enough. Maybe I'll just stop. Right. Yeah. And good for that person. Cause they've done the work. So planning is a process that is meant for 
to, to be done before the thing, to protect you during the thing. And for those who have not put themselves in that position, then please learn from this one that your response as a consumer, somebody uh, should be, I know this is going to happen again. Let's start planning right now for the next one. Planning today won't help you with this one, but it will help you for the rest of your life with all of the next crashes and recessions and you know that come along. So that's the role of planning in this type of environment. For sure. So if, if somebody hasn't done the planning at this point, it, I mean, obviously with the, the market, the way that it went and everything like that, it's too late for that. But when would you say is the point that they should start planning for the next crisis or the next milestone in their yeah, life? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's too late. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say, listen, every day somebody wakes up planning by nature is a series of small habits and behaviors that added up over a lifetime turn into a solid financial plan. Financial planning can be a bit of an ephemeral thing where we look at it and we're like, it's this book of paper. And it's not it at all. What it really is, is a series of micro decisions uh, very rarely is there a massive decision that you make that drives or changes the course of your financial plan. It's always, almost always lots of small ones. Now there, you can look at somebody like, you know, take our business owner clients. Sure. That decision to start their business may significantly alter their financial plan. But for most people, their, their financial autonomy will be a byproduct of lots of paychecks that they took small doses of money out of and put away for a rainy day in a form that took create that took advantage of tax benefit right and so when the average you know middle class or upper class earner and not to leave out the lower class but the reality is many of many citizens in the lower class of earning uh, are simply living paycheck to paycheck so it's not a luxury to be able to put money away and they're focused on something different which is get to a better place in life where i can earn more yeah. But for people who are already earning enough to cover their basic needs and living expenses, um, very rarely is it this dramatic thing, right? So starting with really small things builds habits that can be built on tomorrow. So I would say, well, it's not a great time to like, not having a plan isn't going to make this any better right now. If somebody came to one of us, you or I, and wanted to become a client tomorrow and said, I'm willing to make these sacrifices and do these steps. I'm willing to, you know, put fund a Roth IRA each year or start an Acorns account and roll up all my savings or understand, take an hour with Andrew and, and learn how taxes actually work and learn how much I'm sort of losing every year and in, in uh, essentially a charitable donation to the United States government. You know, all of those things could be tackled right now by anybody who isn't doing them. Um, and so it's a matter of, will I set up the meeting with somebody? Will I find somebody who actually knows this stuff and can educate me? Will I fund the account? Will I make that? I mean, I, an easy low hanging fruit one that you and I talk about all the time is, I'm of the belief that if you have a employer sponsored retirement plan, the easiest way to become a millionaire is to start with a healthy percentage when you're young, you know, seven, eight to 12%, somewhere in there, the higher, the better, obviously. Um, forget about how much your employer matches you. 
that's not a relevant thing. It's free money. You should definitely take advantage to the full extent, but you shouldn't choose your percentage based on what they match. No. And start at a higher level, it's eight to 10%, eight to 12%, something like that. And then do two things. Number one, increase it by 1% every calendar year. Number two, increase it by another 1% every time you get a meaningful pay rate. If you want to become a millionaire, the reality is you can be middle of the road, middle class income. And if you follow that discipline, you'll be maxing out your 401k with tax deferral uh, and tax sheltering at an early age. And you will put away enough over time to, to accumulate a significant amount of money and, and do the things you want to do, uh, more or less, for most people. And yet, how many times do we run into somebody who's like, well, I, how much you put in your 401k? I put 5%. And I always ask them, why did you pick that number? Well, that was my employer match me. Yeah. And, I just, and, I, and we have to walk somebody through, you know, like, well, okay, you were willing to take that free money, but on everything you're not putting in, the government's taking your tax rate. That's also free money that yeah. you could be keeping. And, you know, and so it, it, there's, as you know, 95% of the people we talk to could be making these improvements. And now is as good a time as any to kick the, kickstart them. So just because we're in a crash doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. If anything, it means you should use it as a motivation to be more proactive. For sure. No, that's great. Those are great tips. Uh, whether you're working with somebody or not to get started and to, to start working towards whatever your goals are, those are great. Um, so one of the pieces that we obviously work on a lot, and it seems to be a hot button and a question that people often want to ask is related directly to investments. Um, so, you know, we've, we just went through a market crash. March 9 was the bottom of it. Uh, people are looking at their accounts, you know, they're down for the year, they're down, you know, for some people they're down since inception because of when they started funding them. Um, can you talk us through a little sure, bit yeah. about making up those losses or is that even a thing that we should be looking at? Um, well, listen, psychologically, it's the thing we want to look at, right? right? Um, it's loss. So our immediate psychological reaction to loss is gain. That's our, mm -hmm. that's a natural yin yang type way of thinking about it, right? None of us like to lose. And when it happens, we're naturally inclined to think, well, that was my money and now it's gone. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's so much that's been written and is available out there. And you, you and I talk with clients about this all the time that, First off, in the, in, the, in the investing marketplace, whether it's stocks or bonds or whatever it is, um, nothing's actually lost until it's sold. And the reason that's true is because while individual companies can go bankrupt or individual bonds can default and become worthless, the market as a whole, utilizing a good investment approach, which we pride ourselves on, on having, yeah. um, over time, if you own some variation of the marketplace, whether it's via active or, or passive investments, it really doesn't matter as long as it's not, you know, you're not putting all your eggs in one company kind of thing. Um, you will and should get a graph that goes up and to the right. And so the only variable of whether it'll work or not is time. And if it's not working, that means you haven't given it enough time. Um, so ironically, the thing we, we wish were true is already true. It's just in that moment we can't feel or see. Actually, Leanne on our team just wrote a great blog post about. Uh, I'd never even thought about it this way, but it's um, 
it's a lot like looking at up close at one of those mind's eye pictures, you know, and it's all pixelated and up close, it looks like nothing. It looks chaotic and it looks like a mess and it doesn't mean anything. But when you actually you know, give it time and perspective and hindsight, you can see there's a picture there. And, um, and so loss isn't loss until you lock it in. Once you lock it in, you've just made one of the single biggest investing mistakes possible because number one, there's a, psychologically, it's much easier to sell. Our emotional brain is willing to bail on the thing that isn't working. Um, and so it's very easy to push that button or tell your advisor you want to sell or whatever it is. But in reality, buying back in is incredibly hard to do, especially when you're wrong. Because um, you don't want to buy in higher, right? That's just another way of locking in a loss is, is, is selling something at, at 80 cents and then having to buy it back at 90 cents. That's still a loss of 10 cents, no matter how you do the math. Right. Um, and it's no different than owning it at hundred cents and watching it drop to 90 cents. It's just as bad. It's still 10 cent loss. Uh, but then what we're hypocritical about as human beings is we say, Oh, I'm willing to sell because I believe it's going to go lower. But then psychologically when it actually is lower is the hardest time to buy because when it's at 60 cents, it feels like all hell's breaking loose and the world is ending. So, you know, (laughs) most people who sell never follow through on the other side of that. Even if they get the opportunity, they won't often do the buying because they're convinced it's going to go even lower still and, and they miss out. So the point is, from an investment standpoint, when you hear that old adage of if you don't know what to do, don't do anything at all, that also means don't sell. It means just give it time. And in reality, if you have to do this, there's two, there's two recommendations I give to people. Number one is to truly don't look at it. I mean, if you're in the middle of a downturn, um, the, one of the safest things. And you know, I'm a big advocate for transparency and and I I encourage investors and clients all the time to not be blissfully ignorant because that can be dangerous. Um, But that is one of those rare moments where a bit of ignorance can be your friend because if you're the type of person who is going to panic seeing the statement with the lower figure on it, then just throw it away. There's no point in, you know, forcing yourself into uh, a miserable experience. The second piece of it is shift your mindset, right? So. a lot of the talking heads and experts have, have said, frankly, if you, if you really thought about it, in a perfect world as an investor, what you would have is like 30 to 40 years of really low markets that go up right at the end, right? Because you'd have done all your buying really low and then it gets high. And in reality, psychologically as consumers, is what, we, what we want is the opposite. Even though most of us haven't put the majority of the money away that we'll put away in the course of our lifetime, we somehow want it higher in the beginning, right? Which is, is a penalty to ourselves because we have to pay more when all of our new dollars come in every time we get paid or in our contributions. We, you want lower markets. Like we, it's, a, it's a double standard because we complain when they go down and we, we view that as loss. But in reality, if you're still putting money away, you should actually kind of counterintuitively be excited because when your new money goes in, you are now buying significantly cheaper, which is actually a win for you. So I think many investors need to reframe their thinking mm. and take a long-term view of their money and ask questions like, if this is money I don't need for the next five to 10 years, or certainly retirement money, then do I even care that it went down? And the answer should be no. I should actually be fairly excited that it went down because I I have full confidence that 10 or 20 years from now, it'll be a lot higher, but now I can put more money in cheaply. So 
Uh, I think investors need to either A, not look, or B, reframe their thinking and recognize there's a massive advantage to the markets trading at a lower level uh, as long as you're not right about to retire. And if that's a big problem for you and you're about to retire, then you need a better advisor. So. <laughs> Definitely on that front, um, for sure. And that, that reframing, I mean, that makes so much sense. Um, you wouldn't go out and buy a Ford F-150 for $20,000 more than it's worth. Uh, why would you do the same thing with the stock market? Um, so yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to ask you one more question okay. um, and then let you kind of give us a final thought or final action steps that you have. Um, is there a bad time to start investing? At the end. I mean, it, it's not about market levels, right? We just talked about that. Yeah. The worst, if uh, assuming someone is going to invest, that the, the level of the market has very little to do with it. That where you're at in the lifespan of your investment horizon has everything to do with it. So, I mean, Albert Einstein, who was a pretty smart guy, said uh, that compounding interest was the eighth wonder of the world. Well, compounding interest only works when it has time to work. So, um, you know, I, I think we as advisors, it, it's hard because the, the, the consumer base has a, has a bit of a trading mindset as the uh, as the bookends get pushed, right? And so in the, mar the higher the market goes, and we're not even great about this as advisors, we talk about the old adage being buy low, sell high, but that's actually really trading thinking, right? Because as I've just alluded to, it's really buy low, but if it goes lower, keep buying and buy more. If you're doing it right, you won't sell, right? Yeah. So and not until you need the money much later in life. So um, the real adage from a wealth creation standpoint is buy low. And if you get temporary windows to buy even lower, buy even more. And if you do that, timing matters a lot less than uh, when you buy and what your time horizon is. So if you start investing with 30 years to invest, um, that makes the end the worst time to invest because you now lost all of the benefit of compounding interest. And we don't have time to get into what is compounding interest and why is it so amazing. But for anybody who's listening who's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that, but you don't really understand why it's so important, Google it. Right? Yeah. There's a ton out there. There's a bunch of great YouTube videos about why compounding interest is so valuable. And it is. I mean, it's, it, it is easy for somebody to accumulate a million dollars if they're middle class, if, if they just understand compounding interest it's not hard you and i have seen people who make forty thousand dollars do this because they yeah. did it early and they did it often yeah. right so um the end is the worst time to invest not necessarily the high because you got to remember highs and lows are just relative low is pretty much always low like it, we're nowhere even in this recent crash we didn't come anywhere near the levels in 2008 and in 2008's crash we didn't come anywhere near the low on Black Monday in 1987. And in Black Monday, we didn't come anywhere near the low of the Great Depression, right? We make new higher lows. Uh, and so the reality is buying at the inverse is also true. Highs tend to be higher over time as well. So what's high today will actually be low tomorrow. So sitting there trying to say like today we're at a high, it's like, well, yeah, on a rear looking 
yeah. viewpoint, you're correct. But if you're investing for 20 years from now, why would you use a rear looking viewpoint, right? Then the question is, will we be higher? Will a low in 20 years be higher than the high today? The answer is yes. Ergo, money you put away today, even if we're at a high, would still be well spent. Yep. Certainly better than living it in the bank. Well, the bank is paying zero, right? So again, long-term focus is what matters, not getting it at a high or a low or any of that kind of stuff. Perfect. Can you give us a final thought or a final action point um, just to kind of wrap up our conversation? That's funny because you, pun intended, the name of the firm came from that sentence, um, yeah. <laughs> action point. Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, guys, if I'm going to put a bow on this, odds are the people listening to this, reading this are are um, sort of already at, at least at a cursory level aware that a good advisor plays a big role. Um, one of the things that our community isn't great about being honest about is that a lot of times when things are going great, uh, most of our value is either diminished or is on the planning side, right? So um, this is why I'm such a big believer in financial planning because it, can, it provides value even when things are going well. In fact, it can do even more during those periods where things are going well. And prior to COVID, I was noticing a kind of a complacency in investment-oriented clients, right? If you had a lot of years where you could just stick money in the S&P 500 and have great returns. Yeah. And, um, and so for people who have been plan more planning oriented clients or financial planning focused consumers, still plenty of work to do. There was before COVID, there is now, there will be after COVID. Yeah. But ultimately, if you want to know the value of working with a good advisor, it really comes to light during a frame like right now, because there are, uh, there are statistics galore coming out right now that there are tons of people who are sort of DIY investors that don't have good advisors, don't have fiduciary advisors that made terrible decisions to sell the stock in this recent downturn at bad times and are now buying back in. And so if there's a learning lesson there, it's that a good advisor will tell you strongly not to do that because of these things we're talking about. So, so, not to since we're both in this world in this community i think that's just the one thing i would say to people is make sure you have a good advisor you've got a good advisor putting together this podcast series so i don't want to, i wouldn't want to hear from anybody who would ever see this or hear this but they don't know where to find one uh, you're, you're doing a great job building a practice with all of these things so um you know just keep up the good work and to, to any consumers listening to this he he he'd the advice of having a good advisor even during those years where it's like, man, I don't really know what I'm paying for because I would have gotten good returns on my own. Um, a lot of it is psychological and uh, behavioral oriented. And we're seeing one of these frames that I think you and I are going to look back on. And I think COVID's going to be one of the sort of the, uh, the, the inflection points of the financial advice business in our lifetime. So um, I don't know what that means today, but I think it's ultimately going to end up being really, really important. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the uh, podcast and for the, uh, yeah. and then at the end, I, I did hear that in there. So uh, um, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast and uh, look forward to being the next one. Yeah, sounds great.
All right. Thanks for having me. See ya. Thank you for investing in yourself. Remember to connect with us on Facebook by searching The Stewardship Podcast or email us at thestewardshippodcast at gmail.com. Do you have an interest in connecting with Andrew? Find him on LinkedIn or Facebook and make sure to join us for the next episode.